Need to take the bus to work right now? It's free. Want to go for a walk? Pylons are up on Saskatchewan Drive and Victoria Promenade because former car lanes are being converted into trails for pedestrians and cyclists. Lots of things that seemed impossible in Edmonton are now just happening as part of our response to COVID-19. But more than that, some of these ideas have been floating around for years as ways to reduce our carbon emissions in Edmonton. I'm Chris Changan Phillips, writer, podcaster, correspondent for Taproot Edmonton, and today I'm going to explore a question that a Taproot reader sent us. Are people thinking about this in relation to climate crisis and the need for a total system drawdown? Or which people are thinking about this and how ready are we to really take on the whole picture? We're going to talk to a couple people who are already thinking about it, and we're going to start with a psychology researcher based here in Edmonton. Hello. She patiently waited through some technical problems with my recorder. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I have had these issues with my GoPro. <laughs> Hi, my name is Miranda Lucas, and I'm a PhD student at the University of Lethbridge. Um, My concentration is evolution and human behavior. And you have done some pretty cool field research. Yeah, yeah. Um, So I, for my master's degree, I did field research in South Africa, um, uh, videotaping and observing wild vervet monkeys. And for my PhD, I observed wild humans um, <laughs> in art galleries, observing their behavior um, in that space across the country. So you know of what you speak when you talk about recording um, what's going on out there. Yeah, I, uh, I, I'm a keen observer. How about that? <laughs> uh, cool. Yeah. Okay. So I wanted your help to riff on this question. Um, that a Taproot reader sent uh, about COVID-19 and this wild time and also all the other things they were dealing with, with climate change. And Mm -hmm. the specific question was, are people thinking about this in relation to climate crisis and the need for a total system drawdown? Or which people are thinking about this? And how ready are we really to take on the whole picture? So I thought maybe you and I could talk about how ready are we really to take on the whole picture um, and and what psychology can maybe tell us about that? Well, so I've just been kind of reading up on it a little bit more um, to try and answer it in, in like a more science, like a more psychologically scientific way. And I was reading about like the Keeling curve, which huh. shows this um, steady increase over time um, of CO2 emissions uh, in our atmosphere carbon dioxide. And so the thing is when people see that and, and it's just like a straight line cutting a graph in half, like imagine a perfect 45 degrees just going up and up and up. And it's not exponential like it is when we see COVID graphs. And the problem is that when we see that steady increase graph, um, when we're talking about the climate change crisis, is we don't see that as a crisis. We see that as a slow increase over time that's just going to continue to slowly increase. But the thing is that we're at the top of that graph. Like it is a crisis because emissions have never been higher than they are right now. So this interesting study that I think kind of puts that point, puts a, like a crosses the T uh, to make the point is, um, this study came out today that says that the southwestern United States is exp- experiencing a mega drought, 
And this is like a once in a millennia kind of event. It's the most extreme drought they've ever experienced in the last 1,200 years. So it's, it's major. <laughs> like we're at the top of it right now. So it's just interesting. It's sort of paradoxical because we don't have that fight or flight response because when scientists are communicating the data about the climate change crisis, it just doesn't feel as immediate. It feels like this is something that we've been talking about for a long time. We know we have to do something, but that, that keeling curve just continues to climb at the same rate. Whereas when we communicate about the, the COVID-19 crisis, the idea of something being exponential is terrifying and incredibly immediate. Like if you think of something doubling every single day, you know, if I gave you a penny and then tomorrow I doubled it and then the next day I doubled it, by the end of the month, you, you would have over a million dollars. By the end of a month, like it's, it just happens so fast. So an exponential curve is just in, inherently more terrifying <laughs> than a straight linear curve. And that has a profound impact on how we internalize the immediacy of the issue. Are we like biologically more tuned into like, like exponential change? Is that kind of what you mean? <sighs> or is it rapid change? I feel like it's rapid change is the issue. Like, and, and when you say biologically, that also makes me think, like, we know that COVID-19 is like, it's a biological threat. It could make me sick. It could make my mom sick, right? Like, that's a very real present thing. Whereas saying like, oh, you know, the next generation will suffer. That's, that doesn't feel as scary. It should, but it doesn't inherently feel as scary. I think the the fear interacts in an interesting way with how people are deciding whether or not to wear masks right now. Mm. Um, I just started wearing a mask when I go out and I have never before in my life worn a face mask just for going out on the street. Mm. Um, and I think part of what persuaded me to start wearing one was realizing that it's more effective for helping me not transmit something I don't know that I have mm -hmm. than for like, then it's, it's more effective for keeping other people safe from me than it is for keeping me safe from other people. And it really, when I thought about it like that and I thought about all the beautiful grandmas in my life mm -hmm. <laughs> who I might even indirectly interact with, um, uh, that was one of the things that changed my mind. And I think that is a fear-based response of not wanting to be the person who makes someone else's grandma sick. The other interesting thing about face mask wearing is that it communicates to everyone around you that you care and that you're a part of a, like a community in the sense that you're all going through something together. Um, and climate change doesn't have as many ready symbols I think or like uh, like a lot of the symbols are investments of thousands and thousands of dollars like getting solar panels or a Tesla car is pretty different than getting uh, like some fabric some old t-shirts out and, and yeah. sewing yourself a mask yeah and I think too like the human story behind it 
which is, you know, hearing who has died and, and we don't have those same kind of personal stories about climate change. Climate change is not affecting individual families in the same way, like when they are, because they are in other parts of the world. They're just not as close to our hearts. Like we can't, it's more of an intellectual exercise than an emotional one. Has anything surprised you about the response to COVID-19 from people in Edmonton, both as citizens and institutions? I think I think about it more in the scale of Alberta. Um, mm-hmm. um, and uh, because I'm a total nerd, uh, like graphing and trying to do like predictive models myself to understand when it might be safe for my kid to go back to day home. Mm-hmm. Um, so doing that kind of like predictive stuff and looking at how our province is doing relative to other provinces in the country I think we're doing really well but it's still it's shocking to model something that's exponential versus linear like it really is um and trying to fit those models to something that's progressing at such a rapid pace even though we're doing a good job it's oh hi Lil I was just gonna say it's it's terrifying but then okay bye Lily okay see ya (laughs) <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> but we knew that this might happen. <laughs> she's a sweetie. She's very sweet. Anyway, just using um, the t- like the researcher goggle tools that I have to try and know when it's safe for like my social network um, to broaden. Like taking the advice of. Um, the government and, and everybody that's, that's giving out advice, but at the same time, taking the raw data and modeling it myself too. <laughs> Is this period of lockdown and pandemic response giving you any ideas of like cognitive loopholes or psychological tricks we could use on ourselves to help us see climate change as a crisis on this scale? I hope so. I mean, it would be great to show this sort of this climate change this keel curve data differently to show it in a way now that I feel like a lot of people around me are really interested in the daily number of cases and have we reached the top of the curve so we're to a point where it's flattening right because that means we can go out so suddenly we have this new language maybe to talk to people to say you know that feeling You know that feeling of when you're almost at the top of the precipice of the curve? Well, when we reach the top of this keeling curve, we fall off. Like we don't level off and then slowly decrease. We fall off. There's a point where we're not going to be able to walk it back. And that's the issue with the climate crisis, right? Like when we get to the top, we can't fix it. Hmm. And that's that's the message that's not being communicated. And it's not about, and this is another thing, it's not about, you know, buying a Tesla instead of a Mercedes. It's not about, um, you know, making, changing all the light bulbs in your house because there's data that shows that those consumer-based changes, although they are great, all they have done is flattened energy consumption. What we need to do is we need to reduce 
that means to go down. And so maybe in order to think about it in terms of how do you give up luxuries in order to see this reduction? Hmm. I, I, I don't know. I'm trying, it's like me trying to convince my mom, like, you don't need Alfredo sauce. Like you want Alfredo sauce. <laughs> We're not going to the store just for Alfredo sauce. <laughs> there are other ways that we can do this. Do you know what I, do you know what I mean? <laughs> huh. I, I think also that um, I heard this lovely TED speaker say that um, technology is finally being used in a way that it was sort of intended to. Um, so sure, I think out of this period, we'll see a lot more kids addicted to their screens. I think, you know, let's just give ourselves a little bit of wiggle room and forgive ourselves for that for right now. But also using technology to be creative and c connect with people over large distances. And the thing that I'm the most inspired by is seeing scientists collaborate on such a global scale in order to try to problem solve is really cool. Um, and I hope that those types of connections and seeing how quickly and easily and seamlessly and not competitively and aggressively and sort of like I'm trying to one-up you all the time, the, it's beautiful to see cooperation in such a crazy time where I think a lot of people were anticipating um, aggression. And it turns out that that is not how we are inclined to behave we are way more inclined to behave cooperatively to help hmm. each other and to come together. That's Miranda Lucas from the University of Lethbridge. And today, oops, uh, phone call coming in. Hey, I thought of two things. Okay, one sec. Let me get my recorder put on again. Okay, you're a deal. Okay, yeah. good. Okay, so one thing was the, the Southwestern United States drought the mega drought that's happening yeah. right there is 47 percent worse because of human caused climate change so that's why i brought that up in particular i forgot to mention that it was sorry lily's out of the bath now 47 percent worse because of us and um the other thing is that lily dumped an entire bottle of bubbles like a one liter bottle of bubble bath into the bath while we were recording and I just thought that was really funny. oh my <laughs> yeah yeah and i didn't know until she came out just smelling very intensely of lavender you're not going outside you're naked no you're not going outside bear you neither come on guys anyway i just wanted to tell you that <laughs> okay, okay bye. <laughs> so next up we're going to talk to a researcher at McEwen university who studies these kind of mass mobilization questions Thanks so much for making time to talk to me. Oh, no problem. I really, I don't normally have time to do stuff like this, but <laughs> I guess when you're trapped at home, new opportunities present themselves. <laughs> yeah, that's one way of looking at it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Hi, my name is Shelley Boulian. I'm an associate professor in sociology at McEwen University. Currently, I'm the Board of Governors Research Chair at McEwen, and I do research looking at media, primarily digital media, but media and civic and political engagement. And 
How often are you putting on your researcher goggles these days when you're watching the public response to COVID-19? And how much are you just getting through it? Well, I would say I always have my research goggles on because the area that I teach is in research and statistics. So um, my primary duties are, of course, to do research and teaching at McEwen. Um, and so I'm always looking through that lens. Hmm. Um well, tell me what you're observing. What do you think are maybe some of the parallels you can see between the mass mobilization of action around COVID-19 and um, around climate change? Sure. I do see some parallels between the COVID-19 uh, citizens' responses and climate change responses. Uh, a lot of these parallels relate to problems that we see around collective action. So things that we observe in terms of people trying to uh, engage in mobilization that requires large-scale engagement. So it's difficult, it's difficult to get any one person to incur the cost of an activity or the cost of participation, especially when the reward is something that everybody will enjoy, so it's considered a public good rather than an individual benefit. Basically, no one wants to make sacrifices unless they're assured that others will make this sacrifice for the common good. That's interesting. Like, what cues are do you think people are taking to uh, on whether other folks are making sacrifices too right now? Sure. So I, I've looked at a variety of uh, motivations for people to change their behavior. For some people, it's basically this motivation to do good. And when we studied the civic responses to the Fort McMurray wildfire, we saw that the, a large part of that motivation was just people wanting to you know, help their community members and to give back and to basically do good in their community. So for some people, uh, they will be motivated by this idea of being a good citizen or a civic duty. So they want that. And other people's, they're motivated by a variety of things. So some people are highly motivated by requests from family and friends. So if your family and friends tell you to stay home, or if your family and friends tell you to take the bus in relation to climate change, um, then we see that this is a big factor in whether or not people change their behavior. And then there's another set of people who aren't necessarily motivation, motivated by those other uh, drivers, but they will look at political leaders or they'll look at expert advice. And we have a great expert here leading the COVID-19 response in Alberta. And so for some people, these are the, the motivations to change their behavior taking cues from uh, like uh, scientists and public health authorities? Exactly. Yes. Hmm. Um, what, what affects our trust in what those kind of authority figures tell us? So, well, we judge the credibility of authority figures and, uh, based on a variety of factors, but certainly we see in the response in Alberta, we do see that the uh, chief medical officer is basically very highly regarded and she's doing a very good job managing uh, the information flow and uh, addressing citizens' concerns around uh, this pandemic. And so I think that adds to her credibility. Hmm. Is there... Anything you think, or what can we learn from COVID-19 about how to mobilize people to the scale of the challenge? 
Well, I think that, again, coming back to these collective action problems, we have the similar challenge here, which is we need millions of people to do something in order to have an impact. And that is certainly a challenge uh, for people to incur cost at the individual level when we know that that impact is not a direct impact to them, but an impact on community. And so we need millions of people to do something, whether that be stay home or take the bus in order to have an impact. So one of the key challenges is that we need to trust each other, uh, that we are all going to share the cost of acting and, and, and have that burden or that sacrifice. And we need to trust each other that we're going to do it. And then sort of this is the way forward in terms of the pandemic. We all need to make that sacrifice. We need to trust that each other is going to make the sacrifice. And this will contribute in the larger impact. Hmm. Um, and in Edmonton specifically, are, are there any like manifestations we can that you physically see of, of how seriously people are taking this in Edmonton? Um, absolutely. So I'm actually in Sherwood Park. I do a lot of work with uh, uh, Edmonton and I'm sort of part of that broad metropolitan area response. Mm. And one of the things that I've observed is people are setting up these community, very localized community groups on Facebook to help each other out. So help neighbors out. Um, I believe this uh, concept was, it's an old concept, but it was revived in an, a Guardian piece about Canadians engaging in caremongering. And so I see that at the very local level here in Edmonton. Uh, this response doesn't surprise me, again, thinking about the study we did about the Fort McMurray wildfire and Edmonton's reaction to it. Edmontonians were very highly engaged and had high levels of concern around people displaced by that wildfire. And so what I see is a continuing of this pattern of Edmontonians showing that they are very you know, very good citizens, they take care of each other. So in relation to the COVID-19, what we're seeing is people use social media to set up these very localized groups, which basically help their neighbors, you know, whether they need somebody to go out and do grocery shopping for them because they have to stay home or they're in, you know, a travel related quarantine in their home. We see that people are are demonstrating their, their care. Hmm. That is really lovely to hear and also I keep thinking about it in relation to climate change and how physically distant some of the impacts of our actions are um, and how much harder it is to sometimes connect ourselves with someone who lives a meter above sea level in Kiribati versus someone who lives down the street um, how like is the is COVID-19 as a case study, is it giving you any ideas of, of how we might help people make those kinds of emotional connections or parallels or um, of, of taking care of one another? Sure. I mean, it's easy, I think, to care for one's neighbors because you see them regularly. You can see the impact of doing good. You have that sort of good karma with your neighbors. And I think it's easy to identify and to de demonstrate care when you when you see it face to face. And I think you're right. I mean, it's harder when we're talking about climate change. We know that, you know, uh, parts of Africa are going to be severely affected uh, by climate change, and it's hard to get some people to identify with those 
basically the victims of climate change and to want to do something to help them. And so, again, this is where we have to go back to this idea of being good citizens and contributing our part, even though we may not know directly those the people who are going to be the worst impacted by climate change. If we think about ourselves in this global community, then I think that people can be motivated to act based on, you know, this wanting to do good and seeing, you know, that we're all we're all part of this uh, larger global community. Hmm. Um, some of your research has has looked at how participation in um, public consultations and other deliberative dialogue exercises um, may or may not have a lasting impact in how engaged people uh, are politically. Um, what um, what does that research maybe uh, tell you or suggest about what lasting effects um, public participation in COVID nineteen related like public health exercises might have in in how civically minded or politically engaged people will be in a in a lasting way? I think that actually we might learn from this experience. And in fact, if you know, I was trying to mobilize people to act on climate climate change, I might think about people's response to COVID-19 and use some of the same strategies to motivate people. Um, Again, if the motivation is to do good, then we should jump on that bandwagon and, you know, use that uh, to motivate people to act on climate change. So I think that we, we learn through these processes. And right now, people are very much community minded. They understand how you know, we may live in a local community, but our actions have global ramifications in terms of the spread of the pandemic. Um, and we already have some of the messaging about how to stop the pandemic. And some of these messaging about how to limit the spread are also tactics that would work to limit climate change. So things like restricting uh, air travel, um, thinking about, you know, energy consumption, all of these things have can be mobilized in terms of trying to address climate change. So again, if, if I was, you know, part of that movement to try to get people to act on climate change, I would definitely learn from COVID-19 and see what's working and not working in that respect. Hmm. All right. Is there anything else that you wanted to share with me? Um, no, I, again, I just have this message that I've seen it before in the local studies that we've done in Edmonton. Uh, again, the one you mentioned with the uh, climate change and getting people involved in consultation. I'm just always impressed by Edmonton as a standout community in Alberta in terms of caring about others, but also their ability to take action um, and to do what's what's good, what like what the civic good is. That was Shelley Boulian from McEwen University. We may be a city where people want to pitch in and support each other. But we're also the capital of a province whose economy is utterly dependent on oil. And right now, we've got a provincial government with a laser focus on supporting the oil industry. So how much room is there to learn from COVID-19 and take this opportunity to draw down our emissions in Edmonton? You know, you do hear people saying, well, look, when we slow down the economy like we are now, that that is good for climate, <laughs> for our efforts to adjust climate change. And um, personally, I don't, I don't view it that way. And I... I I actually don't think most people view it that way. This is Chad Park, lead animator with Energy Futures Lab. Chad works with businesses and communities in Canada to help them focus on sustainability. 
And he is definitely not someone who's thrilled with why our greenhouse gas emissions have temporarily dipped. You know, even if there's a, a, a sort of temporary reduction or slowing of the pace of our um, emissions right now because of the economy, it doesn't it doesn't inherently uh, change the the dynamics and the structure and you know the trajectory of our current um, economy. So that's why I think it's important that we not frame this as we need to slow our economy down like we're doing right now. Rather, it's more like we need to find the opportunities that will position us well for a low carbon emissions future and, you know, to be successful economically in that future. We talked about the unique feeling of everybody being focused on COVID-19 right now. It's weird to be in a time where it feels like everyone is focused on one issue. (laughs) That's right. Yeah. And, and the other thing is that the response involves everyone. Um, You know, it's, it's one thing to all be paying attention to one issue, uh, but also we're all, you know, forced to change our daily patterns and our and our frames of reference and so on altogether. All which is, yeah, I guess that's why we everyone's referring to it as very unprecedented. Is that gap in collective focus and attention and work? Um, how optimistic are you that that is is something that will carry through to climate challenges? I am hopeful. Um, I, I think, I mean, even before the COVID crisis, I think we're seeing a, um, a rising consciousness about the need to to address climate change. And, um, you know, at the same time, we also saw a lot of polarization on these issues, uh, you know, energy and climate issues and kind of intersection among them. And um, and so it's interesting because in our work with the Energy Futures Lab, we found um, pre-COVID that the polarization is actually one of the biggest barriers to progress. And interestingly, it was also one of the things that most people could agree on, even though a lot of people disagree on the details of what should happen and, and so on. Um, most people, no matter what kind of viewpoint they're advocating, were sort of frustrated with how polarized things had gotten on that issue. Uh, because no matter what objective you're trying to achieve, uh, the fact that things are so polarized makes it hard to achieve that objective. So um, we found that um, that was actually a useful way to get really diverse people together to talk about it. And um, so I, I think the COVID crisis means that that polarization isn't as front and center right now on climate and energy issues, but I still think it's very much below the surface. Um, And what the COVID crisis has shown is that, you know, it's possible to, um, to, to rally people on a, on a kind of grander scale to, to the challenges. So in that sense, I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm also conscious of the fact that that all the challenges associated with climate change have, have not gone away, even if they're, even if they are um, not as front and center right now in the last few weeks. Hmm. We're in such a complicated situation in Alberta right now. Like our provincially, our oil and gas production is about half of our greenhouse gas emissions right now, but also that sector has been hit really hard, both by the COVID crisis and the drop in the price of oil. How does this affect your 
vision maybe of, of what a co- post-COVID-19 plan should be for Alberta to draw down our emissions? Yeah, one of the, one of the things that we have found all, all the way along is that everyone wants to be part of the solution, uh, you know, and, and it's natural for people to react defensively if they feel they're being um, accused of or painted as being part of the problem. And so I think a lot of the reaction in Alberta, um, I guess, uh, against, let's say, more um, um, aggressive climate policy and action uh, stems from that and and, and a sort of um, uh, fear of, of what it, you know, what it might mean for the future, uh, of, for example, the industry and so on. Whereas in, in our work, what we found is that, um, you know, we've got lots of people from oil and gas that are part of the Energy Futures Lab and, um, and, and are knowledgeable and are engaged in being part of the solution. And that's part of the story that doesn't get told as much when it's uh, painted as in kind of either or, yes or no, you either support oil and gas or you support action on climate change. And um, so I think this situation we're in now is uh, just more urgent evidence of the need to take a, a future-focused lens to the decisions we're making in the short term. And and in that sense, that doesn't mean, uh, you know, we need to choose something. It, it doesn't mean we, we only that we need to choose something other than oil and gas to focus on. It, it partly means that we can, we need to um, reimagine and think about what, it, what could be the role of oil and gas in the transition to a low-carbon emissions future. And there's lots of work happening in the province on on that, like on just a different a different kind of set of priorities and initiatives that uses our the best of our that industry of those resources and so on and 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 uses uses all that to develop new opportunities and new industries. And I feel that the COVID uh, crisis has actually opened the door wider to, to and and sort of opened people's gaze a little wider to um, both the urgency but also the opportunity uh, of a kind of different thinking and new ideas in that sense. There's an interesting window here eh, where uh, the provincial and federal governments are both trying to decide how to spend stimulus dollars um, and what industries to spend them on. Um, you've, you've co-written a piece about ideas for our economic recovery. Uh, this piece was written about a month ago. Um, so you, you talked about ideas like investing in hydrogen and geothermal and uh, a couple other industries. Um, what what signs are you seeing of 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 where those uh, stimulus dollars are going in Alberta? Well, I mean, just last week we we of course heard from the federal government about um, the support for uh, cleaning up the oil wells and, and you know an investment in methane emissions reduction. So that you know I think was a good uh, a good example of that. I mean, the article that we wrote described opportunity areas, five different opportunity areas where, where we could leverage our historic and existing strengths in oil and gas um, for uh, like for future opportunities. Um, so less about, you know, how can we get the industry back to where it was and more like how can we invest to make sure that we are well positioned for the future. So yeah, it, it, hydrogen, geothermal where we can use all the skills uh, or lots of the skills of oil and gas um, lithium where we can you know develop 
a resource that's relevant for a low carbon emissions future from um, the you know from the wastewater of oil and gas drilling and leveraging our, our artificial intelligence skill sets and capabilities to solve challenges in the energy industry and and another one that a lot of people in Alberta haven't heard as much about that I find really exciting is um, bitumen beyond combustion and this is a program of Alberta innovates that's really um, looking at the opportunities to develop alternative uses for our bitumen resources beyond burning them and for example carbon fibers is uh, is, a, is a great um, potential opportunity there with potential for a huge market and um, and what I really love about that is it turns what so far has been a liability about uh, of our resource uh, its carbon intensity in from a from a liability into an asset and um, um, so you know those are the kind of things I think that um, we see great opportunity in there's some of the ideas that have been developed and nurtured along in the collaborative space of the Energy Futures Lab. And, um, you know, it feels to me like this is an opportunity to really um, try to accelerate the development of some of those kinds of ideas. Are those ideas being taken up by anybody yet? I, I mean, it, since the, in the months since this yeah. piece was written, are there, like, good signs of the, this, some of these ideas being taken up? Okay, yeah. I mean, for, first of all, I should say all of the ideas that are featured in that are being worked on and developed by actual Alberta organizations, whether they're um, companies, private companies, um, government institutions, and so on. So this is, these aren't just, you know, pipe dream ideas. These are things that people are actually working on. Uh, so, um, and then in terms of the interest since the piece was published, um, we've, we had an incredible response to that uh, article and so much so that we, um, we decided to host a, a virtual conference on it, uh, which we did on, on Thursday. And we were thinking that we might get, uh, you know, 100 or 200 people that might come and sort of learn more about the ideas that were presented there. But um, without really even promoting it, we immediately had um, 350 people sign up and, and had, um, you know, uh, or more than 100 people on the waiting list. So, we, you know, I, I, just judging based on that, our sense is that there's a real appetite right now for these kinds of, first of all, learning more about them, but also, you know, finding opportunities to contribute to them. That was Chad Park, lead animator with Energy Futures Lab in Edmonton. Thank you for sending in your questions, Taproot readers. You can check out our whole collection of COVID-19 coverage at taprootedmonton.ca. This story is part of Taproot's contribution to Covering Climate Now, a worldwide journalism initiative to bring more and better coverage to climate change. I'm Chris Chang and Phillips. Thanks for listening.